This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. I forgot to tell you something important that Sir Ronald Wilson, one of the two chairs who did the Bring Them Home report, said. So I'll tell you now before I continue with the exchange of correspondence between Sir Ronald Wilson and Nicholas Hasluck after the last letter that Nicholas sent to Ronald on 19 May 2000. Sir Ronald had been one of Nicholas's lecturers at the University of Western Australia in the early 1960s. Then they bumped into each other by chance while both of them were working barristers from time to time, just accidental contact, no close connection. Sir Ronald worked as Crown Prosecutor and Nicholas didn't do criminal work. But Sir Ronald was appointed first to the High Court of Australia and then after he retired from there to the Commonwealth Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Tribunal. That appointment was made at about the same time that Nicholas was himself appointed to be the part-time president of the West Australian Equal Opportunity Tribunal. This common area of work then resulted in more frequent interaction than over the previous years. And so it came to pass that in 1990 Nicholas was attending a semi-formal lunch with some of the heads of the anti-discrimination and equal opportunity judicial bodies in Australia. Sir Ronald made a short speech thanking those attending for their attendance. Then he said something remarkable and disturbing, especially considering his later role in the Bring Them Home inquiry. He said of his new role on the Human Rights Commission, I am looking forward to not having to write lengthy judgments. I will be dealing with matters expeditiously and simply getting on with doing whatever needed doing. This wasn't a very judicial or quasi-judicial way of approaching the important work that he'd be doing on the Human Rights Commission, and especially later on on the Stolen Generations Inquiry. More significantly, this comment wasn't a random one-off comment. In 1991 or 1992, Nicholas was attending a formal conference of the heads of the anti-discrimination and equal opportunity judicial bodies throughout Australia. Sir Ronald made a speech. In that speech, in a much larger and very formal public forum, Sir Ronald not 
only repeated what he'd said before about how he was going to do the work that was his responsibility on the Human Rights Commission, but went further than he had on the last occasion. He said, At times in dealing with matters briskly, I feel that I am living dangerously. Him and the rest of Australia, if that was how he approached his vital role as the most legally qualified commissioner co-leading the Bring Them Home report with Mick Dodson. More of Mick later in the program. Nicholas said that with these comments still in mind, the Bring Them Home report and the media coverage that Sir Ronald got, I have been dealing with the unsettling impression that their findings were likely to be affected by rhetoric and sentiment. Nicholas was not going to be disappointed on that score. So let's go back and look at Sir Ronald's final reply to the chain of correspondence that had been begun between him and Nicholas in May 2000. And then something far, far more important that Sir Ronald revealed publicly for the first time in 2001. Sir Ronald Wilson replied to Nicholas's letter of 19th May in the following terms, which obviously left both sides unconvinced about what the other had to say. Your kindness in sending me a copy of Sir Paul's book leaves me with no choice but to continue this correspondence. I am very glad to have it, and will read it with genuine interest. Thank you for sending it to me. I was not aware that the inquiry did in fact access the book. You will appreciate that I was only one member of the Commission. I sadly agree that we shall have to agree to disagree. I believe the gulf between us centres on our respective understandings of the breadth of the term genocidal. The report acknowledges that removal may have been motivated by the belief that it was in the best interests of the children. But just over a year later, it looks as if the comments from Nicholas to Sir Ronald and perhaps reading the 1988 book by Nicholas's father, Sir Paul Haslick, Shades of Darkness, Aboriginal Affairs, 1925 to 1965, caused the penny to finally drop with Sir Ronald about where his leaving the straight and narrow road that proper legal process requires and living dangerously had got him and the mess that it has gotten Australia into. On Wednesday 6th June 2001, Nicholas was at Perth Airport waiting for his flight to Sydney when he spotted an item in the Bulletin magazine. On the cover of the Bulletin was a photograph of Sir Ronald Wilson with the headline, Second Thoughts on the Stolen Generation. Those two things combined made buying and reading a copy of that magazine absolutely essential. The article was written by journalist Patrick Carleon. It quoted Sir Roland as saying, With hindsight, it was a mistake to use the word genocide. Patrick Carleon wrote, What was that? No, you haven't misheard. Wilson is sorry for the most shocking finding in bringing them home. The verdict that elevated Australian practices and policies to levels of evil associated with Hitler and the monsters of Rwanda. Sir Ronald continued in the article to say that the inquiry was careful to ensure that everything it did was in line with Indigenous aspirations, read feelings, and also read that the report was more interested in not hurting their feelings than telling the truth, even though taking that course 
more than blackened the good names and reputation and life's work of many people, of people who had, with only regard for helping the Aboriginal communities that they'd worked so tirelessly for to improve, painted them as people who had committed what were clearly identified as crimes against humanity. Sir Ronald said that the findings were supported by evidence, by which he didn't mean, as I've already said, evidence in the legal sense. More from the feelings one gets when living dangerously. He gave a totally non-legal explanation in the article for why it was, nevertheless, evidence. But without having to go to that further level of proof which would stand up in a court of law, which is to say that it wasn't evidence that would even stand up to the low civil standard of proving something on the balance of probability. The article gives the impression that Sir Ronald's report was moulded to suit a predetermined outcome, and that's not accidental. Its findings weren't findings of substance, but really more propaganda that an activist might issue. Nicholas, in his book, Bench and Book, Diaries, Letters, Memories, says that the findings in the Bring Them Home report were little better than rhetoric masquerading as judicial method. Perhaps Sir Ronald and others will realise at last that by joining unsubstantiated allegations of genocide with demands for reconciliation, they have prejudiced the possibility of any genuine consensus about the past and clouded their push for an apology. I can't help wondering whether my correspondence played some part in compelling him to moderate his earlier position. I think that the correspondence between Sir Ronald and Nicholas and the Paul Haslick book finally brought home to Sir Ronald the enormity of the crime that he himself had perpetrated on Australia, calling something that was not genocide that most horrific of crimes. Australia is still suffering from that slur. I'll talk more about how widespread that view, the view that Australia stands side by side with the Nazi death camps, is in the international community today. But Sir Ronald's correspondence and his interview with the Bulletin raised some fundamental issues about the Bring Them Home report. The inquiry was launched on 2nd August 1995 by Michael Lavash, the Attorney General under the Keating Labor government. The Keating government lost office on 11 March 1996. The new Prime Minister was John Howard, leading a Liberal National Coalition. The lesser part in time of the Bring Them Home report was completed during the term of the Howard government. There are fairly clearly a few reasons why the inquiry happened. The first was the publication of the article by Peter Reid about his discovery of the stolen generations, later published by him as a book, The Stolen Generations, in 1981. In part one of this series, I talked about how Coral Umrah Edwards broke the news that Aboriginal children had been being forcibly removed from their families since 1910 to the elders of the National Aboriginal Consultative Council. The news spread fast. Pressure from Aboriginal organisations for an inquiry began to be applied from 1990. That's 80 years after the Bring Them Home report said that children began being forcibly removed from their families 
and 20 years after the relevant policies had mostly ended. More materially, this was 10 years after Peter Reid had discovered the stolen generation. The Wikipedia entry under Bringing Them Home says that Aboriginal organisations pushed for a national inquiry as early as 1990. Now, I find the use of the description that Aboriginal organisations pushed for an inquiry into the stolen generations as early as 1990 challenging. I would have said that if the push for an inquiry began in 1920, or 1930, or 1940, or 1950 at a stretch, that would have been early. But pushing for an inquiry 80 years after the alleged practice started and 20 years after it had finished certainly wasn't early. Accepting what Mick Dodson said after the Bring Them Home report was published, every single Aboriginal family in Australia had been affected by that policy. 100,000 children had been forcibly removed. One in three Aboriginal children. What happened in the stolen generations is compared with the Nazi Holocaust, which lasted from 1942, when the death camps began operating, until they were shut down by the Nazis, who then tried to hide the evidence of what they did in about 1944 by blowing up the camps and resorting to other tricks in a futile bid to hide their evil doings. So in three years, the Nazis exterminated six million Jews. If the stolen generation was a genocide, then first complaining about it 80 years after it started and 20 years after it had ended, then if the Nazis and not Australian public servants had been handling the stolen generation, there wouldn't be any Aboriginals today to complain about it. The next important step comes with Paul Keating making a speech in 1992 at Redfern Park, where he says this. We took the children from their mothers. In that speech, he was kind enough to confess on behalf of all Australians, without being invited to do so, and not knowing the least thing about the issue, that all of us had forcibly taken the children of Aboriginals in the stolen generation. What on earth did he base that on? What a position Paul Keating put Sir Ronald Wilson in when he started the Bring Them Home inquiry in May 1995. The verdict was in when Paul Keating made his speech, even before the first words were spoken in the inquiry. More importantly, it wasn't an inquiry conducted with much legal rigour. Maybe it was an inquiry calculated to make the findings it did, because if it had been conducted in accordance with strict legal rules to get at the facts... I can say with a fair degree of confidence that the findings that were made would not have been made. Sir Ronald's backflip on genocide after reading the crucial book of Sir Paul Hasleck, which the committee had in its possession but had apparently not opened. Sir Ronald at first didn't think they had a copy. Turned out they did. But his lack of knowledge about evidence which goes against the findings of the stolen generation says a lot about the way the inquiry was conducted. The Keating government was defeated in the elections held on 11th March 1996. The Howard government came into office 10 months into what was a 17-month-long inquiry for Bring Them Home. So the bulk of the work had already been done when Howard came into office, and the way that the inquiry was being conducted to deliver the result that Paul Keating had declared before it was even conceived were already set in stone. The scope of the inquiry is mainly found in paragraph 
A of the instructions from the Attorney General, Michael Lavash, which reads, Trace the past laws, practices and policies which resulted in the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families by compulsion, duress or undue influence, and the effects of those laws, practices and policies. Now these instructions seem to me to take it for granted that what happened to the Aboriginal children was forceful, wrong and for no good reason. The inquiry was to be conducted in this way. In performing its functions in relation to the reference, the Commission is to consult widely among the Australian community, in particular with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, with relevant non-government organisations and with relevant federal, state and territory authorities, and if appropriate, may consider and report on the relevant laws, practices and policies of any other country. Now it appears that the letter of those instructions were not even attempted to be followed. There appears to be no real consulting with relevant federal, state or territory authorities about what the policies were and how they were administered. When you look at the report, the only witnesses referred to are either people who claimed to be children of the stolen generation or academics or others who were people advocating that the stolen generations had happened and constituted genocide. Genocide is the crucial point in all this. Don't forget that. Keith Winshuttle, in his book, The Fabrication of Aboriginal History, Volume 3, The Stolen Generations, 1881-2008, to 2008, says, Ronald Wilson and Mick Dodson of the Bringing Them Home Inquiry expressly decided not to invite testimony from any of the surviving government ministers, public servants or heads of institutions who administered the policy. Wilson later justified this stance with a claim that his budget of $1.8 million was insufficient to headhunt any of those in authority. This excuse is unconvincing. It would have cost very little to ask all the still-living ministers responsible to testify at the hearings in all states. All would have been glad of the opportunity to put their case. Wilson clearly preferred not to give a platform to views that might have contested those of his Aboriginal witnesses. To judge this case properly, we at least need to hear, in their own words, what those who designed, implemented and administered the policies thought they were doing. If their roles are to be assessed fairly, we need to know their intentions. In the letter from Sir Ronald to Nicholas in Part 3 of this series, Sir Ronald says that no witnesses were turned away. He says he recalls some witnesses who were former administrators giving evidence. But clearly their evidence was a vital part of the inquiry to decide what was actually happening and there should have been plenty of it in time of volume and material. I'll go into more detail on the evidence given at the Bring Them Home inquiry in a later program, but Sir Ronald, as I quoted in part three, told Nicholas this, A major difficulty which confronted us, particularly where the administration of the policies in the Northern Territory was concerned, was the inability of the responsible government, namely the Commonwealth Government, to assist the inquiry. In this case, the invitation was conveyed personally to the government to be met with the response that it did not have the time to gather the material, but that we could do so ourselves if we wished. It was unfortunate that the Commonwealth Government came into office in 1996 
while the inquiry was in progress and revealed no sense of ownership of it. It's not explained why this vital information wasn't sought until more than halfway through the inquiry, when the Labor government was still in office. It's apparent that the committee didn't bother to take up the government's invitation to help itself to gather what they needed. But moreover, without the key people who were involved in the administration of Aboriginal affairs giving evidence, room full of documents were not going to be of much use. In short, this change of government just appeared to be a convenient excuse for Sir Ronald and his team not to risk doing anything that might give them a look at what the other side had to say about the issue of Aboriginals, their children, and how they were being cared for and why. I also get the impression that no effort was made to get the equivalent material from the state governments, particularly Western Australia, which carried the main responsibility for looking after the majority of Aboriginals along with the Northern Territory. Searching through the Bring Them Home report, there is no mention, none, of council appearing before the committee, especially to present the case for the administrators and the missionaries who seem to have been the target of a campaign to vilify them, no mention of submissions, written or oral, no mention of cross-examination of witnesses, no mention of that most essential person to the Anglo-Saxon way, in this sort of contested environment, a contradictor, that is, someone advancing a case that there was no governmental genocidal policy. The evidence of all of the witnesses who claimed to be children of the stolen generation was accepted without question. The evidence included clearly worthless hearsay evidence, such as what Jennifer informed the committee about at PDF page 45 of the report. What she had to say was not, in a strict legal sense, evidence, because there was no way that she could know if what she said was true or not. She said, Mum remembered once a girl who did not move too quick. She was tied to the old bell post and belted continuously. She died that night, still tied to the post. No girl ever knew what happened to her body or where she was buried. Now, Jennifer's stories was about events that occurred sometime between 1915 and 1920, long before she was born. She said she'd been told that by her mother. Did her mother witness it? Or did someone else tell her? If this had been an official government inquiry run on strict legal basis, very little of what the committee accepted as evidence would have been admissible. Now, I need to talk about Mick Dodson and Brittany Higgins' alleged rape in March 2019. Trial issues that might help you understand how things work. Okay, Brittany Higgins and Mick Dodson. Let me give you some context. The sensational rape allegation by Brittany Higgins, she alleges that Bruce Learman raped her in Parliament House. After a long and expensive trial, on October 2022, the judge had no choice but to order that the trial had to be abandoned, because a juror had, against clear and repeated instructions by the judge, brought into the jury room materials, academic articles on sexual assault. The legal process, even the very loose process of the inquiry that led to the Bring Them Home report, works on the basis that the people who have to hear the evidence have to hear the evidence and determine the case based only on the evidence put before them in court. The Brittany Higgins case was aborted because one of the jurors had brought in material that wasn't put to the jury or the court. The juror was going to use that material, presumably, to help decide whether to find the accused guilty or not guilty. 
under our legal system, that isn't fair. Both sides need to be in control of what material is put before the jury. The other side has to have a chance to answer that material, where they disagree with it. With the juror doing what they did, the case may have ended up being decided on material that was wrong. Pretty severe consequences for Bruce or Brittany. Likewise, in a very important inquiry like the Bring Them Home one, it's vital for the two most important people who had to make findings on the matter, Sir Ronald and Mick Dodson, to be impartial, hearing the same evidence and making up their minds on the evidence presented to them. So it's more than just interesting that Mick Dodson was an Aboriginal and an Aboriginal activist. The GNU version of the Collaborative International Dictionary of English defines a person who is an activist as one who is aggressively active on behalf of a cause. It defines the adverb as meaning advocating a cause or engaged in activism. On these definitions, Mick Dodson should not have been appointed to decide if there had been wrongdoing in respect of the stolen generation. An activist with the power that Mick Dodson had will find that there was a stolen generation. His statements made after the inquiry were quoted in part two of this series. Mick Dodson said this, that the policies of the government around Australia caught one in three Aboriginal children who were forcibly taken from their families and every single Aboriginal family, without exception, were affected and traumatised by this. He said 100,000 children were forcibly removed. Was Mick himself removed under the Stolen Generations regime? Or one of his family members, a member of the Stolen Generation? If one in three Aboriginal children were taken forcibly as alleged, then there seems to be a good chance of that. This is like letting a Jew whose family was murdered in the Nazi death camps, be one of the judges trying Nazis for war crimes. If Mick Dodson is to be believed, his statement that every single Aboriginal family was affected and traumatised by the Stolen Generation policies means squarely that he should not have been the co-chair of the Bring Them Home inquiry, but he was. When a person deciding a judicial matter, even one conducted as loosely as this one was, has a clear conflict of interest. It's their duty to recuse themselves. That means not accept or continue with the appointment. That disqualification applies not only if they are biased and have predetermined the outcome in their minds before the first witness is heard, but also even if there is a reasonable appearance, a reasonable apprehension by an independent person looking at the matter that, in this case, Mick Dodson might be biased. With Sir Ronald effectively telling us that he made the findings that Paul Keating had expected him to make, which he then later rejected once Nicholas Haslick confronted him with the material about government policy, apparently for the first time, and Mick Dodson clearly having what should have been a disqualifying interest in the outcome of the inquiry, the Stolen Generations Inquiry's findings are clearly, and rightly, suspect. At best, they are unreliable and should not be accepted for any purpose. In my next program, I'm going to talk about what the High Court of Australia and the Federal Court of Australia found about genocide, and what they decided is binding. Thanks for listening into this program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast